Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What is translanguaging and how does it affect learning and pedagogy? What are the implications of language loss in both school and home environments? What kind of support do teachers of multilingual learners need most as they progress through their careers? We discuss these questions and much more in part two of our two-part conversation with Dr. Seda Hernandez of San Diego State University. As I mentioned in part one of this two-part series, Dr. Hernandez teaches university courses on multilingual education, bilingualism, biliteracy, language policy, and English language development. Her work strives to better understand the language and literacy development of emergent bilinguals, dual language learners, and English language learners starting in early childhood, and specifically about how educational language policies and program models facilitate or undermine language learners' access to equitable schooling experiences. As always, you can read more about Dr. Hernandez on our website at elevationeducation.com slash elcommunity. Before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Hernandez, I want to remind listeners quickly about Elevation's EL Educator of the Month Award Program. We want to celebrate, amplify, and reward the impact great educators have on multilingual learners. To learn more about eligibility and great prizes and to nominate yourself or a colleague, please visit bit.ly slash eom2019. That's bit.ly slash eom2019. Also, a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash elcommunity. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. And finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's the second part of our conversation with Dr. Seda Hernandez. So I'm curious if you could give us like a high level of what that term translanguaging means. Um, and, you know, I think you kind of got into a little bit of how it applies to preparing bilingual teachers. But what are you, I think you're at the kind of like epicenter of where that's happening. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but what, what are you observing with that translanguaging? Where, what is it? Where is it going? What do we need to do to address it? You know, for me, translanguaging as, as a bilingual, but also as someone who is a bilingual teacher educator has been super useful in um, the way I think about how language is used. And, and I want to share candidly with you that I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. So I lost, we lost Spanish and French in my family. Um, and I've been reclaiming Spanish as a heritage language, and I hope to reclaim French someday. But this is another thing that, sorry to interrupt as well, this is another thing that I hear more and more about, and I've heard it from, uh, from uh, Martha Hernandez from Californians Together and a few others. Um, the, the language, the idea of language loss, um, that, that's, that's, that clearly is something that has happened to you and is happening quite frequently. So sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to just emphasize that point that another thing that people don't really recognize is that this is something that happens pretty frequently. 
It absolutely is. And it's one of the reasons why I became a teacher educator because of this language loss that we experienced in my family. Um, and also because in working in, in Los Angeles uh, as an elementary school teacher, I observed families losing language and being, you know, really sent home the message, the erroneous assumption that if they don't speak and, and watch TV in English and read in English that they were going to never learn it. And so those were the messages that were sent explicitly, actually very explicitly to my family, uh, to my parents uh, and my grandparents. And so one of the things that, that I, I, I do is I take this why, right? That's really my why is this language loss. Um, and, and part of the reason why I became an advocate for English learners. Um, is because we we know better. We know that you don't have to lose a language to, to learn another. Um, but to go back to this issue of translanguaging, I think that this, this is connected to this idea of language loss because we have misconceptions of what bilingualism is and what, what um, you know, how learning happens, how uh, the learning of languages happens. And, and I think translanguaging is one of the best theoretical um, frameworks for me that that helps me understand what it is that bilinguals do and don't get me wrong there are pedagogical applications of translanguaging and there's research that's that um really you know especially at the border but uh, but everywhere where there are people using more than one language um we we have a we have a lot to talk about in terms of, of the translanguaging field but thinking about how ofelia garcia um really promoted the use of translanguaging in the u.s context for emergent bilinguals, right? The, the preferred term over English learners, a more additive term. Yeah. Um, one of the things that it, it's helped me is really think about the sociolinguistic con context around language learning. And I use this, um, and, I, and I, I use this a little bit in our, course, in our courses, but I don't use translanguaging a whole lot, and I'll tell you in a minute why I don't, um, what, what lessons I've learned. I bring it up, but, um, but it, 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 is, it provides a frame for us to really understand that students as, or individuals, as they're learning and using language, they're engaging and should be engaging their full linguistic repertoire, right? Which I know is, is, is uh, jargon in the, in the research field, but this idea that they use everything they know in, in their, their languages, right? Whether that's one, whether that's two or three or more. And the idea is that the subsystems of language and, and what they know about language as a system informs the learning and the using of the other. And I think previously we, we, we really thought of, of bilinguals as kind of two monolinguals in one. Yeah, right? one two, at a time, right? Separate brains, right. Mm -hmm. and, and what translanguaging does is allows us to understand through the connections um, and the ways in which um, our languages inform the others and how we can use them to really build, um, to build learning in the other and that we shouldn't you know, ignore um, the home language. And I, and I think for our bilingual teacher candidates, this is critical so that they can understand their own bilingualism from um, an additive perspective and also to understand, you know, I, I try to use it to a way to normalize what bilinguals do. And not everyone understands that, especially if they're monolingual, that idea of, of, of switching and, and mixing languages. But translanguaging isn't, you know, we're just kind of, you know, when we apply it to a classroom, it's not about mixing haphazardly languages, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what it's about. And when it's applied pedagogically to a classroom, um, I'll give you an example for an English only teacher. For an English-only teacher who may be monolingual, maybe is not, um, the idea that when students are engaging with high-level content, um, let's say they're, in, they're learning about, you know, metamorphosis or something in the Spanish classroom, and they want to make meaning with their partner who also speaks Vietnamese or their partner who also speaks Spanish, that they can process that information and talk with each other to make 
you know, I think of George Bunch's research, the language of ideas, they can, they can flesh out their ideas mm -hmm. in any language. And I think that, that translanguaging allow, provides us with, with a tool to, to, allow, to allow that for, to for that to happen and for, for teachers to understand that it's actually beneficial to kids. Um, bringing George Bunch back with his idea of language of ideas and language of display. Of course, we want students to be able, and I'm talking about our K-12 students, and I'm also talking about our university teacher candidates, that we want them to be able to demonstrate high levels of proficiency in, their lang in the languages that they speak and read and write in. But we also know that in the process of becoming bilingual, and also as a bilingual, the, the use of, of their full linguistic repertoire is beneficial, right. and it can be applied strategically in a classroom, even in a classroom where there's a separation, you know, in many of our dual language programs, there is a separation, and as there should be a separation of languages in terms of instruction. So we know that if, you know, if, if a, a school has decided that certain subjects are going to be taught in Spanish and certain subjects are going to be taught in English, that the teacher is going to model high levels of, of that language in that content area. Mm -hmm. But translanguaging um, and the knowledge of it as a, as a theory and also as a, as a, a way to, to, to apply it to practice can really allow us to, um, to think more thoughtfully about what bilinguals do. It helps with identity development, but it also, there's, I just think that we don't know enough and we're not, I don't think folks are, are, are getting this message. Of, like I'm even thinking about the San Diego region that translanguaging really can help with high level conceptual understanding around content and around language. And I think we're a little bit afraid of the term. And I think when I hear people object to it, it's because they haven't necessarily read deeply what it's about. Um, and it is, it's messy. I mean, even now I, 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 I gave you a description, but it, it was a messy description. But I think that if we're, if we think of, of code switching and, and code meshing, right. And mixing of languages and writing, we think of this as something that um, is natural. Yep. And, and I think it can help us be open to the, the promises of translanguaging as a, as an approach, um, even in a, in a separation, you know, in a classroom where languages are separated. Yeah. And you know, what might be like, yeah, I keep thinking in my head of like, as a high school teacher and I started teaching, uh, uh, in the late nineties, I'm aging myself a little bit, but I mean, I, I, you know, to me, I taught, I taught in a district where there were lots of, um, there's a large Dominican population. And so I can definitely tell you that when students kind of went to Spanish or they used kind of that they, they were translanguaging, I don't know if that term existed back then, it wasn't looked upon as something that was a good thing um, at all. It was looked upon like they don't have the English that they need to, um, you know, to, to get their point across and we need to make sure we get more English, which I think that you, you just kind of um, got into that. Uh, I don't think we knew back then or, or recognized the beauty of it. But I do think back then, like that if you looked at a child who was like three or four years old and just like learning to speak, and if they spoke some English and some Spanish or some Mandarin and some English or whatever the case may be, you would be like, wow, that's amazing. What like, that's so beautiful that you can do it in both languages because you, you're recognizing it as a child who's learning. And I think like, maybe if we use that image as a model, it will, it will help people understand that like, there's certainly nothing wrong with it um, at all. And I don't know, you know, to what extent it's kind of, um, change. I've been out of the classroom now for for about four years, but I do feel like the word is getting out, and it, although it is messy, um, you know, it's the changes in policy um, are certainly certainly helping. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and I think to build on what you're saying, absolutely thinking about a child as they're beginning to learn language um, and languages simultaneously, if they're, um, you know, simultaneous bilinguals, I think that that's a, a great example. I also think, though, that using that translanguaging is something that bilinguals do, even when they have high levels of proficiency, right? Though, right? And so I think of it as it's, it's really helping normalize what it is that bilinguals and multilinguals do in a very monolingual society. Yeah. Right? So I think of it that way. And you know, you see it like you see it, like you see it in, 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 in pop music, you see it in like just kind of everyday, you know, conversations, but you don't see it so much in academic conversations, right? Like, or, or I guess it's not as widely as accepted in academic conversations. I think some of that has to do with what you mentioned, whereas, you know, one, one class may be sort of in English, the other class may be taught in Spanish, but allowing students to process, particularly process, um, in whatever language is best for them, um, I think it's a really interesting thing to consider. Uh, obviously, we could talk about, because this is so messy, we could talk about this for I know. Forever. Can I just say one quick Please thing? Please do. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think in, in this translanguaging topic, I understand why there are some educators out there that, that don't want to jump on the translanguaging bandwagon, if you will. Um, I understand that in a dual language context, and I was speaking to this earlier in our conversation about elevating the non dominant language, right? So really elevating Spanish or Vietnamese or Arabic in these dual language programs. Um, and what happens when, when, um, when teachers aren't trained to be able to facilitate the pedagogy needed to, to, to lift students as they're learning content and language, mm -hmm. sometimes what happens is they naturally switch to English. And so then English becomes dominant. So I understand the fear um, in terms of thinking that if, 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 if teachers were just to let students use language, that the English would always be the one that dominates and then they don't become truly biliterate right. because they're not necessarily literate in, their, in the second language. But, but I, I think that it is possible, and I've seen it, for teachers to understand translanguaging well that can facilitate rigorous instruction in content areas with really foregrounding language development simultaneously. Yeah. And, and understand translanguaging as, the, as something that's purposeful and something that's strategic. And it's not about just this kind of free-for-all language use in a, in a dual language classroom. So Yeah. Embrace the messiness. Understand that it's part of the process. Education in general is very rarely extremely uh, clean, at least in my experience. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> so I have one more uh, sort of topic-based question for you before we get into some of the questions that we like to ask um, everyone about resources and stuff. And that is, um, we've talked a lot about pre-service here. That's kind of your area of expertise. Um, Curious though, as these teachers leave your program or other programs and things, the landscape continues to shift, what kind of support do you think bilingual teachers need most um, as they progress through their careers? I think one of the things, and this, this would be true for all teachers um, as well, but I think of uh, the types of supports as they transition. So having programs, um, induction programs where they're supported. Um, it's, a, it's a big leap from pre-service to in-service. Oh, for sure. Um, I never had pre-service. I just dove in. So maybe it was easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know, right? I had no idea. Well, I, it is. It's a big jump. And we, we, we try our best to prepare them on the pre-service end. But we know that, it, that it, is a, it is a big transition. So those induction programs that provide support and a mentor are huge. Yeah. Um, ongoing professional development. You know, I, I see... Um, in our region, for example, we have some great professional development opportunities out of our um, county office of education, um, and a lot of districts are are taking advantage of those of those um, 
offerings. And they're becoming um, higher and higher quality, the state and county. You know, when I was teaching, they just, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, it's not, I'm not happy admitting this, but if, like in Massachusetts, at least there's not much that's being put out by the state or, or even my own district that I thought was useful, frankly, but that seems to be changing for the better. I think it is. I mean, I also, I'm, I do professional development work um, and I partner with the county office um, as well in that work. And I think, you know, I, I, um, I'm a Project GLAD trainer, Guided Language Acquisition Design. I think there are many, many um, professional development models like this, though, that are very, very rigorous and very much centered on teacher learning. Um, so I think that any model doesn't have to be GLAD, right? GLAD focuses on, on language acquisition in the content areas and, and really um, providing strategies to apply what, what you've learned in your pre-service programs. Many times people understand like the, the why and the what, but not necessarily the how. So this gives those tools. And I see a lot of other ones out there that, that folks are, are, are not just having these kind of drive-by professional developments trainings, but that they're, they're coached, right? That there's maybe a classroom demonstration where they get to see the coaches using these strategies with real children, that they get um, some follow-up support. Um, I think also bilingual teachers still need to receive support in, in, uh, in developing their, their language proficiencies. Right. Um, because I mean, we're, we're, we're learning, I, I, I know that we're, I'll be learning Spanish and hopefully French for the rest of my life, but I still am learning English, which is my native language. Yeah. I still learn new words all the time. That sounds familiar. And so, so I think that that's, that's important to, to, to provide opportunities um, that are, that are also chosen though, that we have a wide array of, of professional development, uh, programs that, that teachers can also choose what they're attending and not necessarily mandated certain, certain ones. I think that that helps. And I think also um, strong, strong partnerships with the, the local universities is key. And that's something that our department is working on to really make sure that we keep in touch with our alumni, um, that we're offering, we offer um, forums and we have speakers from all over the country coming to not only inspire, but to also you know, really provide some tools so that they feel um, efficacious in their classrooms. And, and I think that that needs to be ongoing and regular. And, um, and then, so that's one way, one way that they can be supported. And I also think having a, an administrator and, and, and leaders around them that, that get the vision of dual language and get the vision of, of, um, of that long-term commitment for increasing the likelihood that kids will graduate with bilingualism and biliteracy skills that are um, that are top notch. Yeah, that last piece is crucial, and I think the more that we have conversations like these, and the more of the good work that you all are doing there, the more we'll see those leaders who are sort of buying in and understanding the importance of it. So, as we wrap up here, um, I ask everybody who comes on if there's a book or other resource that has influenced you, um, either personally or professionally, that you'd like to share. And we have this kind of ongoing library and selfishly I, I get to read all these books on my own but hopefully others are benefiting from that as well absolutely i'm benefiting from it steve so oh, thank good. you for doing that <laughs> and I, um, so i i would recommend two books that were critical in my development in my phd program and i and there are lots of books i mean i i, I think we could talk for hours about what books we want to share but but i'll, I'll narrow it down a good to good idea for an episode maybe i'll do that <laughs> i think it's a great idea i'm a I'm a book nerd and I, and I, but, but anyways, the first one is Subtractive Schooling by Angela Valenzuela. And I share that one with you because when I read it in my PhD program, um, it really helped me think about the types of, the type of research that I wanted to do, but it also really helped me better understand the plight of English learners um, from a Mexican origin. It really helped me understand, you know, I didn't grow up as a language learner in our system. Mm -hmm. And so even though 
heritage wise, you know, I have family from Mexico. I, I don't have that English learner experience. Um, so that was, that was really uh, eye opening for me to read that book and, and just the type of, of quality research that she does this ethnographic work um, at the border in, in Texas. And the other book is Con Respeto, with respect in English, but um, it's a, it's written in English. It's a book by Guadalupe Valdez. Um, and, and it also is an ethnography. And so these are folks that are informing the type of research that I'm now currently doing, but they also really named um, some of the things I was seeing as an elementary educator, but I didn't know what, how to, how to define it, right? Some of the inequities that I was seeing. And so I think those are, are, are books for anyone who's interested in really understanding um, the relationships. Uh, like for example, the Con Respeto book is really about the relationships between um, diverse families and schools. Um, it really opened my eyes around interventionist parent engagement programs. And I ended up doing a lot of research on parent engagement um, in my, in my, in my graduate schooling so, program. So I think, I think those two books are, are, are really great reads, not just for researchers, but for educators that are working with, um, with our, especially our Spanish speaking English learners. Great. And family engagement, obviously a huge topic and one that we've covered and is really important for this particular um, demographic as, as all. Um, and those two books are your two for two because uh, neither one has been mentioned. So that's great. Thank you for that. Of course, thank you. And last question, and an important one. Um, you, like I said, we met at at Kabe, and uh, I did. I was able to kind of find some of your uh, work and look through the the stuff that you all are doing at San Diego State. I'd love to be able to share with listeners where they can find uh, more about the work that you're doing. Absolutely. So to follow our department, um, we have a website, and it's uh, and really, if they if they just Google SDSU and DLE, which is D L E Dual Language Education. Um, they'll find it, but um, I can, I'll share it with you as well, but it's go.sdsu.edu forward slash education forward slash DLE. And um, that also is connected to our CBER center. We do research around biliteracy and equity. Um, and so they can find more work about the re uh, research that we're doing on these topics. And then personally, I do have a Twitter uh, handle. I'm still a newbie at this, but <laughs> that, that is at, um, Sarah J. Hernandez, and it's S-E-R-A-J-H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z, and Sarah in Spanish, and Sarah in English is my name, so just to share that with you. Serafin was the name of my grandfather. I love it. Perfect. Well, that's great, and I would highly recommend checking out those resources um, and, and the website there, um, and uh, thank you so much for coming on and sort of untangling some of these really complicated issues. I think that it's safe to say that what's happening um, out in California with what you all are doing um, is coming to other places as well. So you're kind of at the, um, at the epicenter of, of what's going on in dual language and really appreciate you bringing in your expertise, your opinions, and your passion for this topic. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. And I appreciate all the great work you're doing around EL education. So thank you for being a, a voice in the community. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.